The Servolution in North Place has begun. The series is over, but may the DNA stay in our hearts. Your giving, just like you did a moment ago, provides opportunities for those kinds of things to happen. The thing that broke my heart the most is that we, we, we ran out of uh, funds. Obviously, we had an allotted amount of funds that we went through, and it didn't take but a, maybe an hour or a little more to go through those. There were cars lined up down the the, the, the way, and we were trying to figure out, there were people pumping gas that says, hey, I'll give more money so we can keep this going, but there's no way to convert it into cards fast enough. So we, uh, you know, obviously you're going to turn away people at some point, but I, we were making such an impact, it was hard to quit. So we're definitely going to do it again and make impact in people's lives through that venue and so many others. Route 57, you can be dismissed. If you're new to our church, that is 5th, 6th, and 7th graders. Sean is in the back. He's one of our Route 57 leaders, and I saw Ms. Rebecca Pettis somewhere that will be helping. You guys can exit to my right down this way to the cafe. These are our 5th, 6th, and 7th graders that have a discipleship time during the sermon in an age-appropriate level. We want them in here worshiping with us because worship is show and tell. We show them and lead them into worship. It's hard to go from puppets right into adult service if there's no transition time. So we take our 5th, 6th, and 7th graders and begin to integrate them into an adult worship service so they become a vital part as young teenagers rather than spectators because they are not the church of tomorrow, they are the church of today. Believe that, say amen. What I'm about to share with you, I truly believe, is a word of God, is the word from God for our church family. But I want you to be clear, I have a sermon that I'm going to share with you today. And the sermon itself is something that God has been leading me to for some time. So the sermon is a word from God. But completely unrelated and disconnected from the sermon, on Tuesday I was praying and the Lord gave me a strong prophetic word today for somebody. I mean, it's been an emotional few days because I've been waiting till Sunday to share this word. It's a strong word. And before we leave today, I'm going to give that word to somebody today. It's right out of the scriptures and it is a, it is a right now word for somebody here. And I don't know why, but it wasn't supposed to be the sermon. It was so strong on my heart. I thought maybe that's what I want to preach on. But the Lord said, no, it's a quick right now word for somebody. And at the end of the service, I will get to that. That is more specific. Today it's for the whole body, this sermon, and it is much a word for the body as, as anything. And I, 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 the Lord's been dealing with me about it. At the end of 2009, while I was in prayer, God spoke to me uh, about what He wanted us as a church to do in 2010. And He spoke to my heart out of the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, specifically the 12th verse. And out of the English Standard Version, it reads this way, Romans 12, 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And early on and interspersed throughout the year, I've gone back to Romans 12, 12. I've preached on Romans 12, 12. The amazing reality that as a believer, my joy, rejoice in hope, my joy is anchored in my hope. And as a believer, my hope is not connected to my circumstance or my finances or my marriage or anything that's going on around me. My hope is connected to the promise of God in my life that He's going to come through for me. That's the reason believers can have the world falling around them and still have a true, genuine smile on their face because they rejoice in hope. And hope in Christ is greater than circumstances. And then we are challenged to be patient in tribulation. If I have joy anchored to my hope, it is not difficult to persevere and be patient in tribulation. And the cycle that feeds that 
is because I am constant in prayer. It feeds my joy. It feeds my hope. It feeds my patience in the middle of trans, uh, in tribulation. I was so intrigued by the spiritual depth of those three commands in Romans 12, 12 that I began to study the context of the entire chapter and I was amazed at the amazing depth that Romans 12 is chalked full of. The Lord spoke to me to memorize that chapter and I've been working on that over the last few months and encouraging me to, to let Romans 12 be the guiding passage for North Place, for the whole year at North Place Church. And so I keep going back to Romans 12 throughout the year. Early in the year, you heard me talk about a theme called Others. On occasions, we'll pick a theme for the year. And our theme for 2010 is just simply Others. If you walk into one of our meeting rooms as a staff, there's a big banner on the wall that just says Others. Because God was telling us to be less self-absorbed and more Others-focused. And the vision of putting Others first came straight from the pages of the 12th chapter of the book of Romans because it says to be a complete disciple and child of God, you have to honor others above yourselves. Way back in the spring, some of the staff came to me and said, Pastor, have you heard about this small group curriculum that Chip, Pastor Chip Ingram has written called the R12 Spirituality? It's based off of his book, Living on the Edge, Dare to Experience True Spirituality. It's R12 because it's based on Romans chapter 12. We thought you might be interested since God has put that scripture on your heart. And so I began to look through the R12 information. And that is, the, the, because of God's leading, that is what we have adopted to be the curriculum for our small groups that will begin in October. I'll begin preaching on the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, going through it verse by verse, and our small groups will be studying Romans chapter 12 in those small group outlays. Uh, there is no doubt that the Lord has led the church to grow spiritually because an American church, for the most part, is sadly spiritually immature. And if you look across the board, it appears on the surface that the American church has little desire to do anything about its spiritual anemia. And if there is some desire to grow, it seems that we are ignorant as to how to achieve spiritual maturity. In my opinion, Romans chapter 12 is the cliff notes for the entire Bible. If you're in business, Romans chapter 12 is the executive summary of one of the most read books on the planet, the Bible. And if you dive into the depth of what God is saying in Romans chapter 12 and get it inside of you, it will not only change this church corporately, it will change you as an individual. We will become more spiritually mature as a congregation. I want to do something this morning that may be odd or different to some of you, especially those of you that grew up in a church like this one. But those of you who grew up in a more liturgical church, those of you who were Methodist or some other denomination growing up or recently before coming to North Place, responsive reading has been a normal part of your worship experience. But for a lot of people, it hasn't. But as I was preparing for this message today, I felt one of the ways to begin to ingrain the concepts of Romans chapter 12. I love responsive reading. It's just something I didn't grow up with. It wasn't a tradition or worship I was used to. And so when I was introduced to it, I learned to love it because I have a deep love for the Word of God. And I have a deep love for congregational worship together. And it combines the two. And so I'm going to ask you to join me this morning in a congregational responsive reading of Romans chapter number 12. On your screen, the verses of Scripture will come up. 
The passages that I want you to read in harmony together as a congregation are highlighted and underlined. They're highlighted in yellow and underlined. And we're going to work our way through 20 short verses of Romans chapter 12 in responsive reading. And I want you to begin to see how Romans 12 can be a profile of an authentic Christ follower. Now I'm going to read and I want you to read your portion aloud together with me. And let's let the Lord speak to us through this text of Scripture. Therefore... I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function. And each member belongs to all others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying... If it is serving, if it is teaching, if it is encouraging, if it's contributing to the needs of others, if it is leadership, if it is showing mercy, love must be sincere. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Share with God's people who are in need. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. But be willing to associate with people of lowest of low position. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody, if it is possible. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Romans 12 is the profile of an authentic disciple or an authentic Christ follower. It is obvious that there is a spiritual anemia in the American church and uh, George Barna, one of the leading researchers about church and theology information in the United States, has released some data, and I've got it here, some of the findings of a survey about spiritual growth and the heart of the American church. And there were some things that came to light in this survey that I want to bring to you. One of the things that became apparent through this survey is that most Christians, these are people who serve God and go to church, they believe that spiritual maturity means following all the rules. 
that if I follow all the rules, then that equates with being spiritually mature. Matter of fact, 81% of the Christians that were a part of this survey identified spiritual maturity as trying hard to follow the rules described in the Bible. So there is a rules-based discipleship, a rules-based process of spiritual growth. It's not about relationship, even though four out of five Christians in the survey said, we believe in faith in Christ, that our salvation is not by works. The same people turned around and said, we believe the process to spiritual growth is trying hard to follow the rules. So it's obvious that most Christians in America have a rules-based religion or a rules-based discipleship growth process. Another thing that came out in this survey is most churchgoers are confused about how to define spiritual maturity because their church does not have a clear picture of what an authentic disciple looks like. And that is true in most cases. And then another thing that came out is that not just corporately has the church failed as an organization to give a clear picture of what a spiritual mature believer looks like. Most Christian people that have been saved even for long periods of time do not understand what they are aiming for. We've had all of these watered-down versions of what it means to be a Christian, and so we don't have this image of what it means to be a spiritually mature follower of Christ. One-fifth of the Christians surveyed said they were unable to offer an opinion as to what spiritual maturity looked like. And then pastors were surveyed in this process and found out that most pastors have a hard time articulating a set of objectives to tell their congregations how to become more spiritually mature. And when they do say this is the process, most pastors focus on activities which focus, which, which uh, underwrites or cultivates a rules-based spirituality. We focus more on what we do than who we are. We focus on a set of rules. So when pastors realize their congregations need to grow spiritually, we call a fast, we work on prayer, we talk about tithing, all of the spiritual disciplines. And while all of those are very important to growing as a child of God, I've known people in my life that have done all of those things very well, gone to church every Sunday, they tithe, they pray, they do everything that a Christian is supposed to do as far as the disciplines go, but they are still not growing spiritually. They're stuck in the same spiritual rut that they were in 10 years ago, which says activity alone is not the answer to growing as a believer. It may be a part, but it is a means to an end and not an end in itself. We focus more on the doing activity than on the being or the becoming side. Pastors are very vague when it comes to pointing their people to passages of Scripture that show them where to go to grow spiritually. Matter of fact, when the pastors were asked in this survey where they go to teach people about spiritual growth, most of the pastors responded, the whole Bible. No, that's a that's, that's very safe answer. That's really nice for all of my comrades to say those kinds of things, but people are looking for a little more details than the whole Bible. Some of the pastors responded, John 3, 16. Some said the Gospels. Some said the life of Christ or the writing of Paul. But most of them said the whole Bible. 
What, what, what it articulates to us is that even pastors are struggling painting a picture for congregants to know a journey they can get on to grow closer. Whether they are starting believers, new believers, or sideline believers, or stuck believers, or seekers who are not even Christians yet. They're pre-believers. Or the seasoned believer who is in us for a long time. Christ is the center of their life, but they still need to begin to grow What is happening through Romans 12 is we're beginning to get a clear picture here of what we're supposed to look like as we develop our spiritual maturity. So the survey not only pointed out a lot of the problems that we have, it also showed us some opportunities. Because in the survey, we were able to find out what are the roadblocks that keep people from growing. Because when that question was asked in the survey, people began to respond why they weren't growing spiritually. And it was such a a massive survey, I would say that much of what the responses were are common to our lives as well. Here are the most common responses as to why I'm not growing spiritually. Number one, lack of personal motivation. It has to start with your own initiative. Number two, competing obligations and distractions. Number three, lack of involvement in activities that nurture growth. I go to church on Sunday morning. That's all I have time for. I'm not involved in anything outside of Sunday. I just don't have time. Number three was the lack of involvement in activities that nurture growth. There were some who gave others, but the next, next most important was sinful behaviors and habits that keep tripping me up. These are Christians that are being surveyed as to roadblocks to their spiritual growth. So the survey began to identify for us some of the things that we need to begin looking for. And here was another issue that that you may view as a problem, and I view it as an opportunity. Most of American Christians surveyed responded that they were satisfied with their spiritual life as is. In other words, they don't want any more Jesus, they don't need any more religion, they don't want any more dedication, devotion, or time in their life being taken up to religious causes. They are satisfied, these are churchgoers, they are satisfied with their spiritual condition as is. So the survey confirmed to us the spiritual complacency of the church in America. However, the good news is that out of the survey, 18 to 20 million Americans demonstrated that there was a hunger in their life. They were dissatisfied with where they were spiritually and there was a heart to want to grow if somebody could just show them how to get closer to God. The survey confirmed to me what I already knew about spiritual complacency, but it showed me the opportunity that's in front of us as a church because there are people in this building today who are dissatisfied spiritually and they want to grow. There are people that don't attend church anywhere who are not happy with their relationship with God and they're just looking for somebody to show them the way so they can become an authentic follower of Jesus. Jesus Christ. That is an opportunity for us. One of the other opportunities the survey showed us is that young Christians are showing more signs of openness to Christ than our older adults. Most of the church that has grown up in the church, the older adults, those that are 44 and older, but especially the uh, the elders, they call them, that are 63 and older, are more common of having a rules-based religion or a rules-based Christianity. Follow all of this list and you'll wind up becoming a disciple of Christ. While the younger generation has nothing to do with rules-based religion, there is a genuine spirituality in their life and there is a genuine hunger. I know that you could say a lot of negative things about 
about postmoderns and a lot of negative things about generation me and all the bad things about this generation. But I will tell you, we have a generation in front of us that is more spiritually hungry than any generation that has come along. They are fulfilling that spiritual hunger in a lot of whacked out ways, but it is an opportunity for the church to tap into that spiritual hunger, give these students some tracks to run on so they can connect with God. I really believe if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ could come up with a a grace-filled approach to an unreached generation that we could literally touch a generation that will shape the world because their hunger is is real, their passion is real, and they deeply want to know how to connect more meaningfully with God. While they may make some of the older generation mad because they're not as much into the rules as the older generation is, the danger of the old generation is they follow all the rules and never grow. And the danger of the young generation is they never give any respect to the rules and somehow we have to breathe grace into both generations and give them an opportunity to begin to grow. Pastors are asking in this survey, it's obvious, wanting help to help their congregations grow. And if you look at the pastors in this survey, they believe uh, they're harder on, we're harder on ourselves as pastors about our congregation's spiritual immaturity maybe than the congregation is on us. One out of ten pastors surveyed said the church was a spiritual barrier to their people growing spiritually. The one thing that's supposed to be the catalyst for spiritual growth, the man that pastored or the woman that pastored the church said, my church is standing in the way of people growing spiritually. Now, while I will confess to you that North Place Church has a long ways to go and we've got to grow up spiritually and mature in a whole lot of different areas, I don't believe, I'm not the one out of the ten that believes we're standing in the way of your spiritual growth. I've dealt with this um, in a lot of ways as a pastor over the years when I started noticing that my congregation was spiritually immature or the people that I lead because I believe that that, that if what I do um, and how I live will eventually be fleshed out and personalities and convictions and passions will be contagious throughout the congregation. And so when the congregation begins to show signs of spiritual immaturity, I blame myself thinking if I led better, I prayed harder, I preached better, uh, whatever, if I plan better that the congregation would be more spiritually mature. And obviously there are always ways as a leader that I can grow. But I I'm, I'm tend to be like these guys, harder on myself than maybe I should because here's the reality. No matter how hard I pray, plan, preach, or all the things that I do, if people don't take an initiative to spiritually grow, you can set the table every Sunday and people come and not eat the food. And that's the reality. You can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And the reality is when I stand before God, or when you stand before God, and you're not where you need to be with Him, I'm not going to be there for you to blame. You're not going to be able to say he didn't preach hard enough, pray hard enough, plan hard enough. If he had of, I would have been more spiritually mature. You're going to give an account to God for you and your family as to your own spiritual development and your own spiritual growth in your own process. Yes, the church is here to help spread a table. The church is here to help provide opportunities, but the church cannot make you grow. There are people that have been involved in every program and every opportunity who still aren't growing, so it means that rules and activities are not the only thing necessary in order for us to connect with God. We need to connect with Him through a relationship. And that's why I love the Romans 12 model of discipleship because it is not rules-based spiritual growth. It is relationship-based spiritual growth. Many people believe that being a disciple is about religious performance. 
As I said a moment ago, 81% of born-again Christians believe that spiritual maturity is defined as trying really hard to follow the rules of the Bible. But living as an authentic disciple is not about being religious or keeping the rules or finding new formulas for spiritual success. It's about a relationship with God. And despite today's confused, performance-driven spirituality, there is a proven pathway to start or restart a journey of faith in the right direction. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the very first word of Romans 12, 1 is, Therefore. Now, I was told early on in preaching that when you read the Bible and you find a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. Okay, so... For him to say in Romans 12, 1, therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, it connects to whatever he said before it, therefore. So if you read Romans 1 through 11, you understand the therefore. Romans 1 through 11 is probably the greatest exposition of what it, li- what it looks like and means to live a life empowered by grace as there is anywhere in the Bible. I mean, Paul eloquently describes the unrestrained grace of God and how that grace impacts a believer's life in Romans 1 through 11. And it was on the heels of 11 chapters about grace in practical application in everyday life that Paul then says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore, since, he said, you have been so overwhelmed by the unrestrained grace of God, it makes sense. It is your only reason reasonable act of worship to offer your body as a living sacrifice because you have been so doused by the amazing grace of a loving God. The therefore is to connect Romans 12 with the previous 11 chapters. It is a timeless profile of an authentic disciple and provides a proven pathway to spiritual maturity from everyone from a starting or new believer to a mature or a seasoned believer. And instead of rules, authentic discipleship is measured by relationship. Romans 12 is kind of the spiritual compass or GPS that guides a believer through relationship into more intimacy with God. Now, when I say it's about relationship, everybody here says, obviously, not religion, relationship. We use that cliche in the church thinking that it means our relationship with God, and it does. But relationship with God is only one of the five relationships that you're going to measure in this profile of a disciple. Because it's not about rules. You're growing in one of five, or or each of five areas, your spiritual maturity is determined by how you're doing with five different relationships in your life. The problem is, most of us in the evangelical world, because we talk about a personal Savior and personal God and a personal salvation, which is all true, we measure our spiritual maturity with only the relationship with God. And there are a lot of people that don't go to church that say they're Christians, and there are a lot of people that don't go to church that don't believe or they don't reach out to the world. They, they do it right there in their home because God, me and, my, me and Jesus got our own thing going kind of thing. And, and, and I, I'm glad that they're believers. I'm glad that they have professed faith in Christ. But they are not being complete. They are not living a biblical model of what it means to be a Christian until there is health in all five areas of their relationship with God. And then there are other four areas. With the world, which is the culture and the values of the world. Your relationship with yourself, how you view yourself in the light of God in the world. Your relationship with other believers, which is the church. And your relationship with the unchurched, those who have not walked in the door of the church. Romans chapter 12 defines spiritual maturity as how you are relating in those five areas of your life. 
with God, with the world, with yourself, with other believers, and with the unchurched. Now, a lot of churches today do good with the first four. They got the thing with God right. They got the thing with the world. They've separated themselves from the world. They've got the, they've, they've, they're humble. They see themselves as they're supposed to see themselves. They've got a good connection with the church. They value the revelation of God through the local church. But the last one is your relationship with the unchurched. The first four do well in most places, but most churches are not connected to their world. They don't understand the call of God to be missional. So everything becomes about us as a church, and we never think in terms of people walking through the door who have never been to church a day in their life. Our culture is more biblically illiterate and less Christian than it's ever been. And if we're going to be a church that's not about swapping sheep from other churches, but really engaging the lost, we've got to examine our spiritual health based on how are we doing at engaging the unchurched outside the doors of this church. It is a missional or missionary focus. With God, our relationship with God is in Romans 12, 1. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's your relationship with God. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 talks about your relationship with the world. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then the next section, Romans 12, 3 through 8, relationship with yourself is the highlight. And it says there, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. And then your relationship with believers, with the church, Romans 12, verse 9 through 13, the highlight of that, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves. And then with the church or or the unchurched or non-believer, Romans 12, 14 through 21, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. I don't know there's a lot of evil in our world and we just talk about reaching out. Most churches have this idea, it's us against them. All the good people are in here, all the bad people are out there and we're just trying to be the first church of the freeze-dried keeping everybody from thawing out until Jesus comes back to earth again. And if we get out there and mingle with those bad people, then all of a sudden we're going to become like them. And so we get all this little hold the fort mentality. And friend, if that's your mentality, you need to quit singing, our God is greater, our God is higher than any other. We need to quit singing about his power. Jesus said he was going to build his church and the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against it. And while there may be a tide of evil in our culture, God says when your relationship with him, when your relationship with the world, when your relationship with yourself, and other believers and the, the culture is correct, you're going to have the power to overcome evil with good. Listen, we are not some defeated people, friend. We are heirs of God. We are the people of God. There is royal blood flowing in our veins. And while we may be in a difficult chapter in the church's history, he's the one that writes the last chapter of the book. And I believe we're going to make a difference in our world. I'm not in here worried about the evil in our world hindering what God is going to do. God's going to accomplish His purposes. And if we are spiritually mature people, He's going to use us to see that it gets done. I'm going to do something today as I come to a close this morning. I want to read Romans 12 out of the paraphrase version, the the Message Bible. And when I read it, I want to see if you can pull out those five areas as I read this profile of an authentic disciple, 
We read it in responsive reading out of the NIV. This is a paraphrase, modern day, just kind of like you would talk language of Romans 12. See if you can find those five key relationships in Romans 12. They're there. See if they become apparent to you. Verse 1. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embrace what God does for you. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You will be changed from the inside out. Notice the emphasis on becoming, being. You will be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-informed maturity in you. I'm speaking to you out of deep gratitude for all that God has given me and especially as I have responsibilities in relation to you. Living then, as every one of you does, in pure grace, it is important that you not misinterpret yourselves as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No, God brings it all to you. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what He does for us, not by what we are and what we do for Him. In this way, we're like the various parts of a human body. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of His body. But as a chopped off finger or a cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? So since we find ourselves fashioned into all of these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts in Christ's body, let us go ahead and be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. If you preach, just preach God's message, nothing else. If you help, just help. Don't take over. If you teach, stick to your teaching. If you give encouraging guidance, be careful you don't get bossy. If you're put in charge, don't manipulate. If you're called to give aid to people in distress, keep your eyes open and be quick to respond. If you work with the disadvantaged, don't let yourself get irritated with them or depressed by them. Keep a smile on your face. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the Master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. 
discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. The R12 discipleship journey is not a journey you've always tried. It really doesn't have a beginning and an end and a system of metrics based on rules. It is more a doorway into a new way of living than it is a destination you're trying to arrive at. It helps you establish spiritual bearings, sets direction, change direction if need be, and provide guidance. But it assumes that everyone in this room is at a different place on their spiritual journey and it is designed to connect and intersect with you wherever you are to start right where you are and begin spiritual growth from your point right now. Whether you're a starting believer, a new believer that would say, I recently gave my life to Christ. A Romans 12 discipleship journey points you in the right direction right off of the bat. In the same way my my son's golf instructor says, I would rather have them while they are children so that they can grow up doing it right than to get them as adults when they have learned how to do it wrong. It is harder to break old habits than it is to start right ones. And if you're a new believer, this is a phenomenal place to learn about grace-filled discipleship. Maybe you're a stuck believer. Somebody that says, I read my Bible and I've gone to church for years, but I don't feel close to God. R12 provides a path to spiritual breakthrough that doesn't rely on the old adage, just try harder. Or maybe you're a seasoned believer. Somebody that says, my relationship with God is the center of my life. Well, then it's a clear pathway for your ongoing growth and places the tools into your hands for you to begin to develop and disciple other people. For years, I have prayed as a pastor for a contemporary biblical way to lead people into relationship with God. And as of now, this is the best things I've ever got my hand on as I take individuals or teach classes to help people grow into their new relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a gift to me in mentoring other people. Or maybe you're a sideline believer who says, I'm tired, I've done all the programs, it's time for me to sit out a while. The R12 journey will provide a healthy pathway back to healthy engagement with God and your entire church family. So whether you're new on the journey or whether you are here and have been around for a long time, this Romans 12 journey of discipleship is relationship-based not rules-based. God put Romans 12 on my heart at the beginning of the year and then providentially led me to Pastor Chip Ingram's material. And I feel with all of my heart, it is a defining moment in our church as it, becomes, as it comes to spiritual growth. In just a few weeks, we'll launch our small groups. I'll be teaching on Romans 12 the month of October. Our small groups will start on the evenings throughout the week or wherever your group may meet on those uh, October days into early November, and we'll be journeying together on this relationship-based, grace-filled journey of spiritual growth. Beginning next week, we start, or actually beginning next month in September, we start recruiting people into small groups because small groups 
is the chosen method of discipleship at North Place Church. If you come from a traditional church that's used to Sunday school, we don't have the space on our campus to have Sunday school. So out of need, we were forced into a small group model. It has advantages and disadvantages, but we have come to love the advantages that are given to us through small groups. This is one of those things where it's going to take your initiative. You can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. The reality is you can come to the first of the year at the end of December 31st, 2010 and say, I'm not closer to God than I was a year ago. And I'll be able to sleep well as a pastor knowing it wasn't because we did not provide opportunities or adequate material for that to happen. Over the next few weeks, literally, we were supposed to begin promoting the small group material um, this next week. The catalog was supposed to go to print. And I asked them to stop. Because when I looked in the catalog, I didn't believe there were enough groups. And I know it was going to put everything in a bind, but we decided to delay the publishing of the catalog for a little while longer and delay the start of our groups for one reason. Because we need more leaders to lead more groups. You know, it would be sad for me as a pastor for a thousand people to say, I want to grow. I'm dissatisfied. And you got a thousand people scurrying around trying to find a group and there are not enough homes open or enough people willing to lead. And so, I, you know, I hadn't taken a whole day or preached about spiritual growth or talked to leaders. And I said, give me one Sunday with a message God has put on my heart to talk to our congregation, make them aware of the need, and ask the Holy Spirit to begin to touch some people's heart that might open their home or teach or team teach. I'm going to train all of the teachers that are going to teach Romans 12, provide you with all of the materials that are necessary. It literally is a DVD curriculum. You push the button on the thing and 10 to 15 minutes of teaching And then right after that are discussions from the reading of the previous week. And it happens through relationship and conversation. You don't have to have ever led a small group or be an expert teacher. You just have to have a willing heart. And if today God is speaking to you, the way to apply this message to your life is to say, you know what, I've been around church a little while. I can lead a small group. I can open my home. I have one somebody turned into me in the last service. These were actually inserted into your bulletin. And while it may be a small, insignificant card, these cards and your response to them provide a pathway for this church to begin to become more spiritually mature. If God speaks to your heart to become a small group leader or open your home or help somebody teach a group, if you would fill out one of these cards and... Um, leave it at the guest reception desk, the silver desk up front, or hand it to one of the service hosts before you leave, or you can lay them on the platform before you leave, and we'll collect them. I really believe God is speaking to this army of believers about growing, and I'm waiting to publish that catalog until we get a few more groups that say, we'll open our home, we'll teach, because it would, hurt, it would break my heart to have many, many people want to take this journey. Sounds different than anything I've ever done, I want to try it and not have enough places to plug them in. So God is speaking to leaders today. He's calling you out, maybe for the first time ever here, to be used of God in this way. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. That is the way to respond to this word this morning. I want those that are going to help me in the altars today, that are going to play and prepare the atmosphere musically, if they would, to join me. I told you at the beginning of the service that this week God spoke to me profoundly about a word for somebody in this room today. And for those of you that have gone to church here for the last five years, you know that I don't do this. (laughs) You know that this is not some dramatic way that I try to get people's attention. I don't know that I've ever done it just this way before. When God began to speak to me at lunch on Tuesday of this last week, I, um, 
I was so overwhelmed with the burden of the moment and what God wanted me to share with you that I thought maybe it was a sermon that I was supposed to preach, but I didn't feel like that. I felt like it was a quick, right now word that demanded a response. Matter of fact, the Lord spoke to me and said, there's no need to preach a message because the people that I'm dealing with on Sunday, they already know what you're going to say, but you need to know. You need to let them know there is urgency to their response. Let me, let me, let me uh, put it in context like this. I said this in the leaders meeting yesterday, but I want to give you one brief one brief acknowledgement of the power that is in this moment. The word moment is insignificant in the human language. Moment. There are strings of moments that happen across my life. 36 years have been full of insignificant moments. The where, where we get the word moment is the Greek word atomos. And it's not hard if you look at it or you listen to it closely to understand. We get the English word Adam from Atomos. And and it is easy to understand why a moment is insignificant. An atom is the lowest reducible component of our environment. An atom. It's small. It's little. It's insignificant. And there are so many of them, we take them for granted. And that's what happens to moments. They come and go. But the reality is, if I look back on the last 36 years of my life, soon to be 37 years I am where I am today. I am who I am as a person because of probably five or six major decisions that I made in a moment. One moment. Six or seven moments shaped my destiny. And so often those moments come and go and we don't acknowledge the importance because we're surrounded by so many insignificant moments that we miss the one that's going to change our destiny. You see, there's another word that we get from atomos. It's the word atomic. And so while a moment is like an atom, it is insignificant. There's a lot of them and we take them for granted. There are those certain moments that come our way in life that become atomic. They are full of divine spiritual potential. Because the most spiritual thing you're going to do your entire life is to make decisions. Making decisions is the most spiritual thing you will ever do. Because it's a decision that you make in a moment that shapes your destiny. Those six decisions or five decisions from my past as I recollected the decision in those moments made me who I am today. And there are decisions that I made that were wrong in those divine moments that stopped me from becoming even more for God. Because decisions, choices in the moment have atomic potential spiritually. And this is one of those moments today sitting at lunch and I'm praying I'm not really to be honest in some deep spiritual place I'm just kind of praying off the top of my head I stumble across the 30th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy and I begin to read about choices here in Deuteronomy 30 and God says I've given you two paths you can take one path parts ways with God if you choose right God says I'll come alongside you and part the ways but you've got to choose life or death 
and I want you to choose life, he said, because I'm a really good God, and I love you, and I'm full of gifts, and you're not living with all that you're supposed to, but I can't give what I want to give to you. I'm not up here ready to strike you dead, but but, but destruction is going to come to your life if you don't choose right now. So he said, I am life. The Lord is life. Choose life. And I'm reading through Deuteronomy 30 and the Lord, no other time in my life, maybe one other time in my life, have I been so overcome by the urgency. I, I tried my best because I don't, I don't want to be dramatic. I don't want to be uh, overly spiritual here and, and, and somebody to make some decision based on emotion. But, but, but it's been such a heaviness on my heart since Tuesday that it is hard for me not to be passionate about this because there's an urgency in the moment for somebody in this room who is in a crossroads, a decision-making moment to choose life. And what you do in this atomic spiritual moment will shape the rest of your destiny. For you, your family, your I don't know. I don't know the ramifications. I just know somebody has to make a decision today to choose life. God may have brought you out of grace and love to walk through the doors of this church for the very first time or you may have been seated here for 15 years but somebody under the sound of my voice today is at a crossroads spiritually. I want to read the passage that God spoke to me out of and this is a direct word for somebody here. Deuteronomy 30, 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you. It's not far off. It's not in heaven so that you would say, I wish somebody would ascend to heaven and bring it to us. It's not on the other side of the sea so you would say, who would go over and bring it back to us? But the Word of God is near to you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good or death and evil. And then I command you today to love the Lord God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply. That the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. That both you and your descendants may live. That you may love the Lord your God. That you may obey His voice. That you may cling to Him. For He is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. The Lord is your life. Choose life. The only other time in my life when I have felt such urgency in a moment like this, the moment this feeling came to me and I felt this urgency, it reminded me of a moment 15 years ago I was preaching a revival outside of Nashville, Tennessee in a small church that was packed with a hundred people. I came to the end of the sermon. I gave a salvation altar call. Nobody responded. I did what I don't normally do. I began to beg and plead. I don't believe if God's dealing with somebody's heart and they're right for salvation, you ought to have to beg and plead them to the altar. But for some reason that night, I just felt felt like somebody was in that atomic moment, that moment of potential that would be for destruction or for life, and I could not let go. People responded to the altar, and everybody thought, yes, that's awesome, but God wouldn't let me go. 
Because there was, that wasn't the one. He was after all of them, but that wasn't why I was burdened so badly. After much pleading and deliberating and people asking, why don't you just let us go? This is getting old and obnoxious. A young lady got up out of the back and walked to the front. She was a young adult. She knelt down weeping. People gathered around her and she gave her life to Jesus Christ that night. A group of her friends got together and they left the church. They went to the county fair that was nearby that church and a ride malfunctioned at that fair and she was killed in that malfunction. Some of her friends called us to make us aware of her loss and the timeliness of her decision to choose life. I knew then in that moment why I had such a burden and I would not let those people go. And they delayed for so long for one girl to make up her mind to choose life. I'm not telling you today that somebody's never going to get another chance. I'm not being overdramatic about that, that somebody's going to walk out of this room and die. But what I am telling you, it's the only other time in my life I have felt a burden like I felt Tuesday, that there was an urgency to your decision making. And I don't know if you're 13 or you're 30 or you're 93. It really doesn't matter whether you call this church home or you're a guest, but there is a path in front of you and God has been dealing with you. And there is an urgency in this moment. It can be another meaningless moment that you just let the preacher talk and you walk out to your car and miss a destiny. Or it can be one of those moments where you unleash the blessing of God, the love of God, the favor. Because He's not picking destruction for you. He's picking life. He stacked the deck for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and said, choose any of these you want to eat, but not that one. And even though the deck was stacked in their, their, their favor, they chose the wrong one. They chose death instead of life. Today the deck is stacked in your favor. God interrupted my agenda, stopped me in the middle of a sermon, and said, somebody needs to choose life today. You know, I thought about having the prayer team come down first because it would make it easier for people to respond. But the people that I'm talking to today, God's already dealing with, and you're ready to respond. You're ready to choose life today because you don't want destruction that's on the other side of the wrong choice. If you've never known God or you're a prodigal and you're away from God or you've been playing games with God or it's some other arena of your life and you have to choose. This word is for you today. Listen, I'm going to go to bed burdened if you don't respond. But there's not blood on my hands today because I'm going to give you the chance. I'm going to pray and I'm going to walk down front. And when I say amen, we're going to stand to our feet as a congregation. And if you need to choose life, I want you to step out of where you are in the balcony area or on this floor. And I want you to meet me down here because I want to pray with you, sir, ma'am. I don't have faces or names. I just know somebody is making a decision that's going to shape their destiny. It's an atomic moment for you. Don't make light of it. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you move on the hearts of people today? It wasn't a sermon. It was a prophetic word, specific and clear and targeted. There was no ambiguity, Lord. You are life. Choose life. There are two pathways in front of people in this room today. God, I'm not asking them to join my church. I don't know if I'll ever see them again. I just know today I'm supposed to give them a chance to choose life. To choose you, God. 
And Holy Spirit, will you do what I can? Will you reach where I can't reach today? And will you redeem this moment? In Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet? And if the Lord's talking to you this morning, would you step out from